0: go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. Thank you to Robert for reading those verses for us. To get us caught up contextually, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been teaching in the temple. He is in the middle of the feast of Tabernacles. He's interacting with multiple groups within his audience, but the religious leaders have had enough. We saw that last week, verse thirty. They sought to take him. Verse thirty-two, they actually sent men to take him. So the the tension is rising, if you will. They've got a plan in motion now to take him into custody. And this morning, it's really interesting because Jesus is going to have one kind of parting shot here in this conversation that he's been in. We're going to look at that in the first few verses, and then he's going to pull back and lay low for a few days. It's really amazing because when he started teaching, it was right in the middle of the feast. Now he's going to pull back, he's going to lay low, and then he's going to make a very public declaration to to climax the feast when we get to verse 37 through 39. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And he's going to make this public invitation. And in fact, he's going to use that word. It says that Jesus cried out. It's like loud, hoarse, Scream so that everybody can hear him. It's this large public invitation to anyone within earshot should be able to respond. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Bear with me because let's put it this way verses 37 through 39 are like the bomb, anyways. Like they're awesome verses. But if you'll give me a second to kind of build the detail and, and describe the culture, I think we're going to paint. We're going to be able to paint verses 37, 39 in like full living color. It should come to life knowing what was going around with Jesus. I mean, it's cool that he said it, but it's even cooler when you understand the context of what was going on behind the scenes with this festival. And we'll talk about that as we kind of get to the middle of the message this morning. In verse 33, let's go ahead and turn there. Verse 33 through 34 reads this. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And so Jesus is simply letting them know, my time on earth is coming to a close. In fact, from this story of John 7, he's only got six months left until the crucifixion. It doesn't seem that way, right? Because you would think that would be further in the book of John, but here we are, chapter 7, he's got six months left until he's crucified, definitely his hour is coming, and definitely the nation's time in terms of receiving him is slowly ticking away. And it doesn't look like it's going very positively because every time he appears, the religious leaders want to kill him. That's typically the opposite of receiving somebody as your king. That just Those two things seem to be the opposite ends of the spectrum. And he tells them his time is coming to a close. And then he says, and when I leave here, I'm going to go to the one who sent me. Now, interestingly enough, he uses the word go here that means undercover, or he's going to go with stealth. And you'll see he kind of develops that uh, again because they're, they're going to seek him. They're not going to be able to find him. Why? Because he left stealthily in, in the sense of they're not going to be able to know where he went. Now, this makes sense because the one who sent him was God the Father. And so going to him, going back to the Father indicates he's returning to heaven. So Jesus is already predicting, if you will, his, not only his, his death, his resurrection and his ascension, that the father's going to receive him. This is huge because if the father didn't validate or accept what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry, then he wouldn't welcome him back into heaven. You ever, uh, those of you that had children, you ever have a child show up to your door just covered in mud? It's like, bro, I love you. But if you come in here, your mom's going to kill me. You're going to have to, we're going to have to hose you off outside. There's there's a level of a a non-acceptance, right? When you don't let somebody in. But Jesus just clearly says, when I leave here, I'm going back to the one who sent me, implying he receives and accepts what I'm doing. He validates and verifies my ministry. And what he goes on to say is that you will seek me and not find me. And, and what's so interesting is this, if you jump down uh, to verse 35 through 36, this just triggers confusion amongst his audience, this, this statement right here. They're like, what do you mean? Where's he going? We can't find him. You'll, you'll see, it's going to set off this massive confusion. This word seek, again, it's the same word we've been seeing over and over again in John chapter seven. It means to strive to find. It means... Earnestness, anxiety. It's, it's again joking with the guides. It's moving the milk to get to the ketchup bottle in the refrigerator, right? Not just, I mean, it's actually searching, seeking to strive to find. It's an intensity of pursuit. And so, one of the things that you'll see from this comment is really two things. One is kind of encouraging, one's kind of tragic. And that's this some in Jesus' audience would really get it after he was gone. And then they're going to want to pursue him wholeheartedly, or at least the concept of the Messiah going forward, but he won't be on the earth physically. The tragic side of it is some to this day are still looking for the Messiah, but they've discounted Jesus as meeting the qualifications. In fact, when you when you look at the common prayers of the average Jew, and especially a Jew who's Orthodox and who, who attends synagogue service consistently, the average Jew in, in their prayers, their daily prayers, they are looking for the Messiah. The problem is they missed him, but they're still looking. And Jesus describes that group here as well. We're also going to see in Acts chapter two, Peter's going to preach to some of these Jews. And guess what? They're going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to believe. So they're going to be seeking for him even after he's gone, he says. And we know even from history that, that first century Jews, they had a messianic expectation that was extremely heightened, largely, I believe, due to Daniel's prophecy. They were kind of Aware and aroused and interested in what was going on, largely due to Daniel's prophecy. Uh, by the way, if you look at Daniel's prophecy, even Nebuchadnezzar's dream in, in Daniel chapter two, you see four kingdoms. Right? You see the Babylonians, you see the Medo Persians, you see the Greeks uh, Grecians, and then you see Rome. And who's in charge right now? As Jesus is on the scene, Rome's in charge. So you can see why there's this heightened messianic expectation that maybe He's coming. But they had rejected him. And that was, and that was the problem. And this is why he says, he goes on to say, and where I am, you cannot come. So not only will they not be able to find him or discover him, but they will be unable to find him. See, this is something more. It's not just saying, hey, I picked a really good hiding place and you're not going to, you can't find me. It's literally, they are unable to find him. That's what he's going to say here. He says, we cannot. It means objectively, they don't have the inherent or uh, power or ability to go or to see where Jesus is going, in other words, they would not have the ability to bring themselves into heaven. This is where jesus is going he 's going to heaven. they won 't have the ability to get themselves there in the presence of the trying God because they 're unsaved they 're not born again. Remember uh, jesus 's conversation in, in John chapter three, if anyone could get to heaven based on their righteousness. If anyone could get to heaven based on their piety and devotion to God, it was Nicodemus. If anyone on planet earth in the history of mankind could get to heaven on their own, it would have been Nicodemus. And in John chapter three tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must experience the new birth. And Nicodemus, that's not by trying harder. That's not by being more holy that's not by doing more good deeds. That's not by doing less bad deeds. That's by trusting in the solution that God will send in his dearly beloved son. And this is why John three sixteen, that which we all know growing up is in the context of his conversation with Nicodemus. How are you born again? It's when God has given his dearly beloved son, you put your faith in him alone. And the promise is when you do that, you will never perish. You will never face the death penalty that you deserve. And you say, wow, that's, Hard news. Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You ever sinned? Have any of us ever sinned? Well, that just tells us we deserve death. And Jesus came and died for you so that you wouldn't have to face that death penalty. When you believe in him, you'll never face that death penalty. You'll never perish. And you have something in that moment that lasts forever. It's called eternal life. Which means if I can lose eternal life in five years, Due to some sin, it wasn't eternal to begin with. There's nothing I can do to lose eternal life because it's on the basis of trusting in what Christ has already done. Again, as I've said a million times, God's not looking at your life in the future to determine whether or not he's gonna provide salvation to you. He's looking at an event in the past where his son took care of it all for you. And see, that's the message of the gospel these men that Jesus is talking to, they are not even gonna have the ability to follow him into heaven because they're not born again. They're standing in their own righteousness. They still have a sin debt to pay for because they're not trusting in God's solution. They're literally looking at God's solution in the face, in the person of Jesus Christ and saying, I reject you. I reject God's solution. And you know, that's why anybody who ever goes to hell is gonna be there. It's not because they were dirty, rotten sinners. They are. But it's not because they didn't try to go to church because many of them did. It's not because they didn't do ministry because many of them devoted their lives to ministry. It's because they will look in the face of God's solution through the word of God and reject Jesus Christ as their savior. They'll say, I like Jesus, but I gotta do a little bit more. Trust me, Jesus is not trying to just bump you across the finish line. If that's your image of salvation, like, oh man, I'm almost there. Come on, Jesus, just bump me across. Just get me there wrong image. Jesus needs to carry you across the finish line. You, you literally can't walk. You literally can't get there. He, he needs to deliver you to heaven. He needs to be your savior and save you implying that you cannot save yourself. Religion implies you can save yourself. That's why I believe that the Bible oftentimes calls that a doctrine of demons because you can be sitting in the front row, and no offense to anyone sitting in the front row, but you can be sitting in the front row of the church and slip right off of it into hell if you're not trusting in God's solution for righteousness and your death penalty. So we want to get that straight. It's very important. These men were missing that that day. And so again, they don't get it. This is this is what's going to be revealed in verses 35 through 36. They don't get it. They misunderstand what he's saying. They start to discuss among themselves. And I believe it's in this discussion that Jesus kind of excuses himself from the conversation and lays low for a few days. And this is what we'll see going forward. But notice their discussions. Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come. So again, it shows this level of confusion brought about by Jesus' statement. Now it's interesting their question because it reveals that Jesus's crowd, especially the Jewish leaders, have a really good job of not listening. They hear parts of what he says, and then they just shut their ears off and don't hear the rest of what he says. And it's interesting because they just focus on the fact that they won't find him, not that they will not be able to. You see that? They, they, that's what they pick up on. They're like, what do you mean we won't find him? Oh, I know why, because he's, he's a sinner. He's going to go hang out with the Gentiles. We would never go there. I mean, that's, that's what's implied is a religious judgmentalism, even in the question that they're asking. And this is what he says, does he intend to go to the dispersion? So um, this, we don't talk about this a lot in the Bible, but there was an area right up kind of toward this, the Sea of Galilee and to the right over here in Decapolis. Um, you can see, I should have brought a map. I just, anyways, I should have thought of that. But anyways, this is, this is an area but so where some of the Jews were, had been dispersed. They were living amongst Gentiles and they thought, oh, well, maybe geographically that's where he's going. And in their mind, that would make sense. Yeah, because we wouldn't go there. We're too spiritual to go there. It's kind of their attitude here in what he's saying. And so he thought, well, maybe he'll be ministering to Jews there. Maybe he'll be ministering to Gentile proselytes who are living outside of the, the country of Israel. And so again, it was the, the dispersion, the diaspora it's kind of the idea. These Jews who had scattered from the land of Israel, they were living elsewhere in the world. He thought, well, maybe he'll go there amongst the Greeks. Now notice he said, it's interesting because this is a very subtle point, but I think it's a strong point. Notice what the focus of their understanding of Jesus's ministry is. They think he's going to teach the Greeks. This is the thrust of his ministry. You now, oftentimes we look at the life of Jesus and, and the average person thinks that Jesus just went around doing miracles all the time. Like that was the purpose of his life. He just went into hospitals, cleared them out, right? He just went over here and just, that's what he was doing all day long. The emphasis and the thrust of Jesus's ministry was his teaching. The miracles got people's attention. They validated that what he was saying was true. They validated and verified that you could trust what he was teaching. But this was the thrust of his ministry, was teaching. And so it kind of even just comes through in the question that they ask here. In fact, the question they ask is, is it anticipates a negative answer in the Greek. It's like, Surely he's not going to the dispersion, right? Surely he's not going to the Greeks, right? It kind of expects a negative answer. And so now this conversation is going to kind of break up. And Jesus apparently at this point turned away, left them to the discussion, uh, the conversation. And then he he kind of uh, disappears or he quietly stays in the background for, for another three days. And then he's going to make his presence known again with with. Uh, basically, a loud shout. And it's just really incredible how he does this. Now, you're going to have to forgive me. I don't know why I ask for forgiveness um, when I give a lot of detail, but you're about to take in a lot of detail, okay? Hang with me till we get to the end. There's a purpose for this. You're probably like, why? Well, I don't even want to learn all this stuff. Maybe you do, but thank you. Okay. That's all I need. All, that's all I need is one person that wants to be here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, so. <laughs> That's funny. Thank you, Allie. All right. So here's some, here's some helpful background content, background context on the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles happened six months after Passover, which here's a trivia, here's a math question, don't, don't stress. So then how many months is it till the next Passover if it's six months after? There you go, y'all got it, man. That's good math. Okay. All right, so it's right in the middle. It's it's leading into Passover, but it's six months after Passover. And if you recall, it was it was regarded by most Jews as the most popular of all three feasts. Okay. Just exciting time, nationalistic, uh um also religious, I mean, focused on God, but focused on the success of the nation. Everyone was jazzed and geeked up about it. Now, before we go any further, I have to read what Jesus says first. We'll come back and unpackage this, but I want you to see where he's going as I'm giving the detail on this, this feast. Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Like I said before, that's really cool. Everything you just said is really awesome. But when we start painting the cultural context, I think you're going to enjoy it even more. A couple of things. Feast of Tabernacles was an 8-day feast commemorating the nation of Israel's time in the wilderness. As I mentioned, great time of nationalistic religious celebration. The feast consisted of a 7-day festival Okay, so that was the seven days. The eighth day was observed as a special Sabbath. Now scholars, when we get to Jesus in his, his, or we get to John uh, verse 37, it says that last day, that great day, scholars debate, is that the seventh day of the feast or is that the eighth day of the feast? And there's a lot of debate there. Is he talking about the, the, the observance of the Sabbath following the seven days? Or is he talking about the seventh day? I lean toward the seventh day, and I'll tell you why as we go through, okay? That's neither here nor there, by the way. It's not anything to break fellowship over or anything. We can all still eat together afterwards, in other words, if you disagree. But it's the, the seventh day, I believe, and we'll talk about why that's significant. This festival was a fall grape and olive harvest festival. They celebrated, uh, again, what God was doing for them presently through the harvest. But they also looked back and used that time to celebrate what he had done for them in the past. In the past when? Well, during the their wilderness wanderings. And this is why they would build these temporary booths or shacks. It was kind of like camping out. And they would live outside in these, these uh, you know, handmade booths for seven days. And they would do this to commemorate, uh, the, the, the time or simulate the time that their ancestors lived in the wilderness. And oh, by the way, what did God do for their ancestors when they were in the wilderness? He provided food for them and he provided water for them. Okay. So that's kind of where we're going here as we go on the feast of tabernacles. And so God had been faithful. And this is what they celebrate during this time. One of the things you'll see in Jewish literature, the eighth day is never called the great day. The seventh day is, though. The eighth day is never called the great day or the last day. So, if John is, <clears throat> is writing consistently with other historical accounts of this festival, then he's saying that the last day, the great day, is referring to the seventh day. So, that's one of the reasons I would say it's a seventh day. And it does immediately, or it does impact our immediate context. And this is why we're going to go through it. Hold your seat because there's a lot more details. There's a lot of ritual here, but I think you're going to see it's pointing to something. And that's kind of what we want to get to. And so starting on the first day of the feast, very important. So day one of the feast uh, and continuing every day following, one of the priests, just a, a priest would take an empty pitcher with him, would take a group of Jews with him to the pool of Siloam, which is near the temple. He, it was an empty two pint pitcher and as he was going the the group would sing psalms along the way and this part of the feast was uh, was a central part of the morning sacrifice every day of this feast okay every single morning and then the priest uh, or the preacher the priest uh would fill his pitcher make his way back uh through the water gate of the temple on the south side of the temple so you can see this this imagery is drawing water. He's coming through the water gate. They've got a group singing and chanting. Many of the Jews would actually, when they walked by the pool of Siloam, history tells us, they would oftentimes take a drink out of that water because that pool represented God providing for them water in the wilderness. It just kind of became a representation of that. So as they walked by the water, they were just like, oh man, thank you Lord for providing for It was kind of a reminder. It was a little bit of a memorial as they walked by this pool. And by the way, how did God provide water in the wilderness. We'll kind of get to this later, but on a couple of occasions, he provided it through a rock. Remember that? Crazy. <laughs> this rock was, we learned in 1 Corinthians 10, was, was following them. That's a sight. That would have, must have been a sight to see. And, and, and so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But again, it just, it just reminded them of two things. One, God has provided for us in the past. God will provide for us in the future. So it's just this faithfulness of God, worshiping God. So they would go down to Siloam. He would come back through the water gate. Now, here's what's really interesting. You're going to start to see the connection here to what Jesus said, because Three trumpet blasts were made by some other priests as they were coming back up. And look what the procession back up into the temple looked like. It was led by chance of Isaiah 55, one, ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. Isaiah 12, three, therefore with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Glance down in your Bibles really quickly and look at the very first thing that Jesus says in verse 37, that second part of the verse. Can you see the connection of what's going on? Now it gets even better, if you like that so far, it actually gets even better than this because the priest with the pitcher of water would time his arrival back in the temple with the laying of the pieces of the sacrifice on the great altar of burnt offering. Again, this was done at the time of the morning sacrifice each day of this festival. So you can see there's a ton of symbolism being brought into here. There's there's timing involved here uh, with this ritual. Back in the temple courtyard, uh, the priest would then take the pitcher that he had filled with water. He would pour it into a basin. That's, that's a bowl, roughly. Another priest at the same time would also pour the daily drink offering of wine into a different basin. And then they would both pour the water and the wine out before the Lord. That was what's called a drink offering or something effective. But they would pour the water out. They would pour the wine out to the Lord. It was an offering. It was a, a, an offering of praise, The pouring of the water, and here's what's very significant. There was some significance to this. The pouring out of the water represented God's provision of water in the wilderness in the past and its provision of refreshment and cleansing in the Messianic age To come, The pouring out of the wine symbolized God's bestowal of his spirit in the last days. And so it's important for us to get into the mind of the average Jew that's at this feast. Here's what's going on Uh, the first day at the morning sacrifice. God provided water in the wilderness. He was going to provide rain in the land for their harvest presently. And one day he was going to cleanse them as part of the new covenant promises um, through water. Is kind of how it's illustrated in Ezekiel. and We'll kind of get to that toward the end. So when you look at uh, this whole water, right, the reason they went through this, they, they filled it up every morning, they brought it back, poured it in the bowl, poured it out. They did all these things. Like for some of us that didn't grow up in a liturgical church, we're just like, that's just weird. You know, it's like, why do they do all that stuff? But there's significant imagery here that the average Jew would have picked up. And I'll tell you what's also significant about it. This feast, the, the water right portion of this feast that we just described had strong messianic connotations, strong messianic connotations that the Messiah would one day be with them and they would never run out of water again. Now we don't typically think about that in Noonan, Georgia, but when you live in the desert, water's pretty important, right? It's very significant to everything that you do, all the decisions you make. Now it gets even better because at this point, typically the priests would all make one procession around the altar. And they did this for the six, first six days of the feast. Same exact process. Go fill it up. Walk in. chant Isaiah 55, 1. Isaiah 12, 3. Pour it into a basin. Give as a drink offering to the Lord. Walk around the altar one time. Six days in a row this happened. Well, guess what? On the final day, on the seventh day, they did everything that they had been doing except now the, uh, the priests made seven processions around the altar. It's kind of a climax to the feast. It was designed to, to uh, just engender emotion, to, to really just pour your heart. Wow, Lord, you're gonna take care of us. It was this designed to kind of be the climax of the feast. And then the priest would then ceremoniously pour the water into a silver basin, which was a kind of a specialized basin on the seventh day. And then they would in turn flow through a tube to the base of the altar. And then the entire crowd would chant Isaiah 55, one. In Isaiah twelve three, In fact, it was a powerful experience for any Jew that attended this. The, the Mishnah, which is Jewish writings, said this concerning this ceremony, he that never has seen the joy of the water drawing has never in life seen joy. That's how meaningful it was. It would be a, a group meeting where, uh, you know, if they were emotional, you would see people in tears, tears of joy, thinking about what the future might look like with the Messiah, and so this paints the picture of the backdrop, I believe, of what Jesus says in verse 37. My guess, and, and, and my guess just based on the, the masterful teacher that Jesus was, it's at this moment that he stands up and says what he's about to say in verse 37. Right in the middle of the feast, right in the public eye, they're chanting Isaiah 55, 1. They're chanting Isaiah 12, 3. Ho, everyone who comes, thirst. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Therefore, with joy, will you draw water from the wells of salvation? And I think he's standing up saying, I'm the water, guys. I'm salvation, guys. I'm the Messiah you're looking for. I I am the fulfillment of what this feast pictures. I'm here. And if you want eternal life, come to me. Verse 38, if you want eternal life, believe in me. Right? That's the one response that he's looking for. So this is the climax of the feast, I believe. Verse 37, on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Again, I think this was the seventh day, and I think this was probably just followed the seven processions around the altar of these priests. Everyone's mind is on the Messiah. Everyone's mind is on the future kingdom. Everyone's mind is on God providing for them. And Jesus gets up, and in the text is going to say he cried out. It's that hoarse cry of a raven. It's, it's a scream. He wants everybody to hear, I'm that man. I'm the one you're looking for. And he lets them know this in no uncertain terms. And so you've got this nationalistic pride. You've got this messianic expectation for some, heightened state of arousal, emotionally just engaged and invested in this thought of, of what's to come. And then Jesus stands up in the middle of it's Just incredible. What's really fascinating is we start to juggle all of chapter 7. Because if you remember back in the early parts of chapter 7, Remember, Jesus was actually hesitant to come up to this feast with his brothers. Remember that? They were like, man, if you're the Messiah, just declare yourself openly. Just, you know, just uh, tell everybody. Just do miracles where everyone can see you. And Jesus is like, it's not my time yet. I'm not going to go up that way. I'm not going to come. And then he came into Jerusalem secretly, the text told us earlier. And now he's about as non-secret as you can be. (laughs) He literally just stepped right into the spotlight of the glaring eyes of the Jewish religious leaders and said something. But again, he, he understands timing. He understands the father's time. He understands when he needs to say something, when he needs to back off. And so it's just amazing, as you, even as you contrast the start of chapter seven with where we're at now, because this is definitely right in the face uh, of everybody. And so a couple of comments on how he communicated. A little bit intense. A couple things to observe here uh, before we consider the words Jesus said. First of all, uh, Jesus stood. Now we see that, we're just like, well, he's just trying to get everyone's attention. Kind of significant in the Jewish culture because uh, most rabbis taught sitting down. The idea that he stood is the idea that he is trying to get everybody's attention. Again, it just kind of feeds into that concept that he's trying to get everybody's attention. And then he cried out. I've talked about very abrupt manner of conversation communication. They're they're all watching the proceeding, and then some guy gets up and yells. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. Maybe. Maybe at the DMV, someone just starts screaming. I don't know. You're just quiet. You're reading a book. Someone gets up. It's a little startling. It's a little jostling. You're not expecting that in that time. So this was a very unexpected way to communicate, but he gets up. He wants everybody to hear. It's not a private message for some. It's a public message for all. And so he's going to make this public invitation. This just completely public invitation directly in line with the Messianic scriptures that had just been screamed and yelled by the entire crowd, that had been called out and sang by the procession leading the water back to the temple. He's going to tie himself to those Messianic passages so that they can see the connection. And so now let's get into his invitation a little bit and look at that. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, if is a third class condition in the Greek. There's multiple conditional statements in the Greek. This is most like our conditional statements. If maybe they will, maybe they won't. If someone's thirsty, maybe they might be, maybe they might, some might not be. It's kind of the idea. But if they are, if they meet that condition, then he's inviting them to come drink, He's building off again this imagery that he's been going through at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's going to use this analogy of being thirsty, right? That's what Isaiah 55 1 brought out. If you're thirsty, come to the waters. And Jesus is going to say, if you're spiritually thirsty, come to me, right? He's going to use that uh, imagery there. So he's basically telling him again that he's the fulfillment of these passages that they've been quoting. Come to the waters. Instead of saying, come to the waters, he says something profound, come to me. Instead of drink waters when you're thirsty. He's going to say, I'm the living water. It's kind of what he was telling the Samaritan woman back in chapter four, right? Also where? Near a water source. So he's, he's a master teacher. We're going to see a John 15, by the way, when we get there, he starts to teach on the vine. And you're like, man, where did he come up with that? Well, uh, as we go, as we kind of go through John 15, you're going to see, I, I believe they were walking by the temple. And if you know something about Herod's temple, he had a large golden vine that he had built on the, on the doorway as one of the entrances in the temple. It's most likely they're walking by that entrance there. And so as he walks by a vine, he says, I am the vine. And Jesus did this. The master teacher, he could, you know, he could take a water bottle and be like, start teaching about. I mean, he just was great with visual aids. And so this is what he's doing here with this entire crowd. He's pointing to this messianic prophecies about him and using them. And notice he, he's going to combine, I believe, two previous illustrations of faith. Two previous, previous to us, at least in John, we've seen these come through, but he's going to issue them as two commands. Now, you know, if it's unclear what he says here, just wait till verse 38, he's going to clear it up. He's going to say it more directly because he's going to tell, uh, tell them to believe in him. But he's going to use these two illustrations for faith first. The first command that he gives is let him come to me. If you were here for John 6, uh, I think this word come, ercomai, was used like 12 times in John 6 as an illustration for believing to him. And so, again, notice the him mentioned here is the one who's hypothetically thirsty. In fact, if, if you're not thirsty, there's no way I can convince you to drink something. But if you are thirsty, it doesn't take much convincing at all. You may even hate water, but if you're super thirsty, you'll drink some water. You may hate Kool-Aid. I have some kids that like certain flavors of you know, Gatorade and Prime, but when they're thirsty, they don't care what the flavor is, right? Just put it down because you're thirsty. The idea is that they're thirsty, that they see a need. Now, there are people in Jesus's audience who are thirsty, and guess what? There's people in Jesus's audience that aren't thirsty. They could care less about spiritual things. They could care less about what Jesus has to say. They have no interest. And do we have those kind of people in our day as well? Yeah, we got all across the spectrum, different levels of thirstiness. And largely, I, I think part of that is the reason, especially for the unsaved, is, is unsaved don't realize what a perilous situation they're in without Christ. And so they think that, that Jesus Christ, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. He's kind of he's nice. I like what he has to teach. But they don't realize that he's the Savior. He's the only Savior that God's sending. There's, there's no other life raft. There's no other helicopter coming. There's no other boat coming. You cannot pass him by. He's the only one, and he's the only one because he did everything that he needed to do. So you can literally entrust your eternal destiny to the one who died for you and rose again. And if you need any convincing, it's right there. God raised him from the dead. He accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. The question is, do you? And see, most religious people would have to honestly say, no, I don't, because I gotta do something. And God says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. See, God doesn't justify righteous people. In fact, he condemns righteous people. He justifies ungodly people who trust in his righteous solution. That's the message of the gospel. And so he's saying, let him come to me, John 6. That's an illustration of faith. Let him drink from John 4 and John 6. Again, it's implied that they have to be hypothetically thirsty before they'll do these things. They're not going to take a drink. They're not going to come to Jesus if they don't think they need to, right? If you're swimming in a pool and you can swim to the side, I'm not looking to the lifeguard to save me. In fact, oftentimes I'm annoyed when the lifeguard's looking at me because I'm like, what's his problem? Why won't he? He can look at someone else that can't swim. Maybe I can't swim that well. Maybe that's why he's watching me. But you don't don't typically look for help if you can do it. And see, religious people don't understand that. They think they can do it. (laughs) Some of them don't even think they need Jesus to push them across the finish line. They think they're going to be waiting for Jesus at the finish line. It's tragic. It's sad. But the gospel is available to all who recognize that they're thirsty and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's incredible about what Jesus is saying here. Now, he further clarifies his response here. He he gives the response that he's looking for in verse 38. He's going to give it clearly. And he's going to describe some results. Now, these results are mind-blowing. These are... This is something that's unique that he's going to describe here. And we're going to look at those results after we kind of clarify uh, the response. But he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. No one talks like that, do they? That is just unique. That is a unique statement on, on, on earth. No one talks like that. It's just an incredible thing to say, and we'll kind of develop that more. But now he clarifies what he meant to come to him and to drink of him. It means to believe in him. The, the Greek word pistuo believe, the verbal form of believe, used a hundred times in the book of John. Many, uh, you know, many times it's in a context of the only response you need to have to be saved or to to get the gift of eternal life is believing in Him. Pastewa Ice has the idea of there's a, there's a directional faith. I'm believing in Jesus. I'm not just believing. Sometimes people talk about that in religion. Oh, you just have to have faith. Oh, just have faith. Just have faith. Faith in what? See, that's the key. Faith without the right object is worthless. Faith in the right object can be can equal eternal life. That's the question. And even as you go through life, as a kind of a side note here uh, with the Christian life, who or what are you trusting in? You know, I even hear people, and I know what they mean. I'm not trying to be hard on people, but but think about what we say. Do you trust in the power of prayer or do you trust in the God to whom you're praying? See the distinction? Sometimes we start trusting in like our mystical incantations. And we have this idea that if we pray really, really long, then God is somehow obliged to answer our prayer. You know, probably some of the best prayers I've ever prayed in my life have not been on a Sunday morning. They've been in a time of desperate need, and all I could get out was help. <laughs> you know, many of us think, well, man, if that's all you're going to pray, God's not going to listen to you. No, God probably likes shorter prayers. In fact, when you, when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, he actually criticizes the religious leaders. that They think for their long prayers, they're going to be heard more. God's probably thankful for some of us when we just kind of rip off a short one. You know, and say, Man, I'm just gonna trust you with it. I'm not gonna trust my long words and my my incredible vocabulary that I'm learning. No, I'm gonna trust you with it. And there's just this constant anyways, I'm getting distracted. So he who believes in me, talking about salvation, justification. He who believes in me, it's this clarification of these two phrases, coming to Jesus, drinking of Jesus. It means to trust in or rely upon who he was, what he had done, and what he would do as it relates to his cross work and his resurrection. In fact, they were trusting him specifically in this context to do what? Satiate spiritual thirst. That's really the context. If you're thirsty, thirsty. Believe in me, I'll satiate your spiritual thirst. You will no longer thirst spiritually. That's the condition. Now, by the way, you're not gonna find any other condition in this passage to have your thirst spiritually satiated. It's here, it's belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is there no other condition? Because he completed the work. He did it all. You're trusting in his work to get you to heaven. You're trusting in his work to satiate you spiritually. That's what he's talking about here. And then notice what he says. There's a result of this. And this is what's so mind-blowing. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. You're talking to a thirsty person, and now you're saying there's going to be water bursting out of their heart, implying what? They'll never be thirsty again. That's exactly what he told the woman at the well. You drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. She's like, let me in because I'm tired of hiking up this hill. I'm tired of filling up this can. If I don't have to come out in the heat anymore, I'll take, where can I find that water? Remember, that was her response. He wasn't talking about physical water. But for somebody that's thirsty, believing in Jesus Christ, there's gonna be something transformational that Jesus is gonna do for them. He's gonna put a water source that's bursting, that's flowing, that's living inside of them, never to thirst again. That's his promise here. That's what's so mind-blowing about what he says. In fact, he says out of his heart can literally be rendered out of his gut or belly. It's the bowels, literally, of the person. It's the innermost being. The spiritual satisfaction that Jesus talks about is not going to be just, uh, you know, what oftentimes people provide. It's not going to be just like a, you know, a fortune cookie. Oh, I feel a little bit better about myself. And then something else, oh, you know. It's funny how quickly we forget the fortune cookie when something happens two hours from then, right? It's not lasting. It's temporary. Jesus is saying, there's going to be something I'm going to put in your innermost being that just keeps flowing and providing you with life and spiritual satisfaction. Mind-blowing. That's what I I love about our God. He doesn't do things half-baked. He doesn't do things halfway. He finishes projects. He does it to the full. He does it abundantly. He's not, he doesn't invite you over for dinner and throw out cheese and crackers and say, enjoy. No, he provides the full meal, the buffet, right? This is the God that we serve. We're not talking about, he, he just doesn't do things lightly. He doesn't just give you one cup of water and say, okay, that better last you for a thousand years and I'll give you the next cup. No, you're gonna have a rivers of water Uh, flowing out of you. Just to make, let's kind of keep unpacking that. Will flow describes the movement of some liquid in some direction. It's not stagnant water. You know, I don't know if you guys, some of you may like to hike, but certain hikes around here, you know, like even in Chattahoochee State Park, you, you start getting down by the Chattahoochee River and the water doesn't even look like it's moving. and It's nasty. It's dirty. You know, it's a lot of places it looks really dirty but you go a little bit further north and you start hiking through the mountains and you've got flowing rivers. It's, it's loud, it's a pleasant sound. In fact, if you had a hammock, you could probably take a nap out there because the sound of rushing water, there's something fresh in that. I don't know if I'd wanna eat a fish out of the Chattahoochee, but I would eat a fish out of some of the, the streams up north, right? because there's flowing water. Imagine eating a catfish out of the Chattahoochee. Wow, that would be something else. This is is flowing waters, is what he's talking about. By the way, I said it's a promise, future indicative. The Greek backs it up. It's a guaranteed promise. This is what's going to happen when a person believes in Jesus Christ. This becomes true of you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, did you know, as you sit there today, that out of your guts is flowing rivers of living water? Do you have the resources to live the Christian life? You better believe you got them. You've got, you got rivers flowing and teeming with life. You have access to that as you sit there today. Now, you might have come in today with your, with your head down and a little discouragement. And I'm sorry if you're going through a trial. My heart goes out with you. But I want to encourage you today. You've got everything you need for that trial right as you sit there. And it's because of your God. Not because of you. It's not because of what you need to do or don't do. It's because you got a God who cares about you enough to do this kind of stuff, which is mind-blowing. No one talks this way except our God. This is why it's so incredible to think of what he's doing. Again, as I said, uh, you know, I think it obviously speaks of church-age believers, but I think for Jesus' audience, these Jewish Readers, this Jewish audience thinking in terms of the new covenant that was promised to them in Jeremiah thirty-one and Ezekiel thirty-six. They're also looking forward to this day when the Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom. This is all connected to this audience here. And again, I've made a comment about a couple of these things. But notice it's it's rivers plural, not river singular. <laughs> again, when God does it, He does it well. It's abundant. Right. And this is what he's talking about. Rivers of living water. The waters described as living, indicates ongoing, never-ending supply of life, eternal life. And because the location of the living water is identified as the person's innermost being, it shows that the life Jesus offers is implanted in the person who trusts in him. Now, by the way, let me just make this comment. So many times, too, and I, I want to just draw our thinking back, so many times when we think of the blessings of God, we think of Blessings, but understand this: that every blessing that you have is because God has given you a person. When when we talk, when we sang earlier that Jesus Christ is our living hope, you don't have hope outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's be clear: there's not. It wasn't like God just made promises, and like I've said before, it's like, oh, here's your ticket. Here's all the promises on the ticket. No, what God did is he he gave you promises. But he put them in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he gave you the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in verse 39 that this rivers of living waters is not just something you have in and apart from relational connection to the Lord. You have it in a person. And it's through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. God is so personal. He doesn't just give you blessings. He gives you himself. And oh, by the way, he's full of blessings. Just having him in your life is full of blessings. Occupied with him is full of blessings. Enjoying him, you're gonna experience blessings. Everything that you need is found in the person of the triune Godhead who is now personally and intimately connected to you as a believer, as illustrated by this, being flowing out of your innermost being. And so he is the person that now becomes the source of your life and your blessings and the experience of it. And he's inside of you. That's what's so interesting about what Jesus is going to say in verse 39. Now, he makes this interesting comment as the scripture has said. Now, typically as a Bible student, what are we looking for there? We're looking for the Old Testament passage where he said this. We're looking for the Old Testament passage where he communicates it. And it doesn't seem, honestly, in this case, it doesn't seem that Jesus had one verse in mind. In fact, it looks like he had a summary of some Old Testament teaching here. God often would describe himself as the provider of water to thirsty people and and providing unending springs of water. And this is, Jesus is saying, as the scripture said, now here's how God is doing it. It's kind of the idea, I think, in terms of connection. Additionally, and I mentioned this earlier, it's interesting. Later, now obviously 1 Corinthians 10:4 wasn't written at this point in time. So Jesus is not referring to this, but obviously Jesus knew this truth. He's involved in this truth that Paul shares. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 10:4 connects Jesus Christ with the rock which gave water to the Israelites in the wilderness. In fact, let's pull that up. And all drank the same spiritual drinks, talking about the wilderness generation of Israel. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. (laughs) So, even though we didn't see it in the Old Testament, it was clear that the rock that was following the wilderness was the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Moses got in trouble, right? You remember Moses, the, the first time he struck the rock and water burst forth, the second time he was to speak to the rock. But Moses got so mad at the people, he hit the rock again. And it disrupted God's, um, I think, type and anti-type that he was creating there in Christ. Because Christ is not going to suffer twice for your sins. He suffered once. And then he uh, was raised and then entered into his glory. And so you'll see that. The other thing that it's possible, again, is, is that he had benefits of the new covenant in mind for this audience. And they might have seen that. So we'll consider that in the next point. But let's read and let's kind of close out this morning in verse 39 with John's editorial comment. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, this is John's helpful editorial comment, right? What does he mean by rivers of living water? What does he mean by that? Well, John tells us he meant the Holy Spirit, which he would give at a future date from John chapter 7. This is... uh, also may help us fully understand the scripture that Jesus may have been referring to because the blessing of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant was promised to the Jew. In fact, let me just pull this up, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Notice the connection of water, cleansing from sin, and the indwelling Holy Spirit all here promised in the new covenant to the Jew. "'Then I will sprinkle clean water on you "'and you shall be clean.'" I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Again, with Jesus's audience here, this is very significant because now he's tying faith in him to the reception of new covenant blessings. That was a connection now. They, they, they thought the new covenant blessings were coming. They thought it would be Messiah, but Jesus is now saying, if you believe in me, you'll get access to the new covenant blessings, is, is what he's describing at a future date. A lot more could be said. There's some distinctions to be made, but let's keep moving on. Whom those believing in him would receive. So John is now giving a, a comment looking back in time. Remember, he's writing this around 90 AD. So we're looking at 50 to 60 years after the events of John 7, that he's recording this. So he's writing back to give us some clarity. And thankfully he does, because if he did not there'd be a lot of argument. What did Jesus mean there in verse 38? So John kind of clarifies us for it, uh, clarifies it for us. There we go. The one condition, uh, again, receiving the Spirit is believing in Jesus. Okay, that's, that's how you receive the Spirit. Notice verse 39, those whom believing in him would receive we learned years later that one, when, when, when a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they receive the Spirit. The Spirit of God not only seals them, but they are sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. Let me just pull up a couple of verses from Ephesians that teach that. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel is your salvation. In whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then finally, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we see that direct connection to the reception of the Holy Spirit to the moment when person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we kind of see that develop further. Uh, In the epistles. And now John also provides a helpful understanding, really, of an important doctrinal component of the Holy Spirit. And and we kind of picked this up. You'll you'll notice that the word given there in verse 39, your versions will have it in italics. Okay. And all that means is the translators have added it for translational clarity. But even without it, the meaning is clear. The indwelling Holy Spirit was not yet. In other words, he didn't take up that ministry of residing in believers yet because uh, Jesus had not yet been glorified. That was the, the key event that had to happen before the spirit could come and indwell believers permanently. This is what Jesus alludes to in John fourteen seventeen. Notice the careful wording language he uses as he's talking to his disciples. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells, notice, with you and will be future in you. When will that happen? Well, when Jesus is glorified, according to John 7, 39, that's when that that ministry could begin. So again, the, the timing of this ministry had to do with Jesus's glorification, which again, had to follow his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This is why they're looking for the promised spirit in Acts 1 and 2. It follows these things. John adds that for us. Very, very helpful. Well, let's close right there one of the things we're going to see is this public invitation was so bold. It's, it's got a gender response, right? We're going to look at those responses next time. It won't be next week because we're going to have a special praise Sunday next week. But again, Jesus is just constantly, graciously, lovingly looking down, oftentimes the barrel of a gun with people that want to kill him and trying to clarify his identity for anyone that will listen. He, he puts himself out here in verses 37 through 39. And so there's a lot to digest there. And we'll look at that the next time we get together. Let me close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks for your word. Uh, it's just a, a privilege to study through. We just, we just love the way that you do things. And we love the way that you handle things. Lord, we want to, even today and even going forward this week, we want to be able to trust you with our lives. We want to be able to state confidently that we want our, your will for our lives and nothing else. And, and so it's in these stories that we see the, the, way that you, the way that you teach, the way that you communicate, the way that you've provided for us, Lord, that we can see that you're a good God. You're a God that we can trust. You're a God who has thought of all the contingencies. You've put everything in place. May we just be encouraged as we leave here that we can find in Jesus the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.